We're in a series on community here, so that's why the Cheers theme song. Hey, take a look at the uh, video up here real quick. Are you tired of small groups always getting into your business, trying to get you to share your feelings, discuss your past, confess your sins? Are you just looking for a place to kick it, network, maybe get some free grub? Me too. That's why I created what I believe to be the world's first openly shallow small group. We're not here to deal with messy stuff like feelings and emotions. You got problems? You deal with them. You're an adult. Life ain't easy. So stop the pity party. We all have our issues. We don't really want to do life together. Frankly, at Shallow Small Group, we try not to do much of anything at all. You'll never hear us use the term, unpack that thought. We're sure it's packed away for a really good reason. And you'll never hear us use the term accountability unless you're talking about someone who deals with numbers. Hey dude, thanks for doing my taxes. You have great accountability. And spiritual growth. Who wants growth? I had a growth removed last week. It wasn't pleasant. There's no pressure here to remember each other's name. What's going on, buddy? Oh, hey man, how's it going? That's good. Hey, good. Oh, dude. Captain, what's going on? We know you have a name, and that's the important thing. Group discussion? You got tickets to the big game? Sweet. Let's spend some time on that. Oh, you and your wife are struggling financially? There's tension in the relationship? Uh, that's not really the vibe we're going for. We avoid conflict like the plague. Who wants cake? <laughs> Come on and get it! And there will never, ever be an awkward silence. That's our guarantee to you. We hate bad theology as much as the next guy, and we know the surest way to prevent bad theology is to avoid theology altogether. And outreach? This is the only outreach you'll ever have to do. Some people say we're superficial, but hey, the word supers and superficial. I mean, who doesn't want to be super? Shallow small group, because when things get too deep, people drown. Won't you join us? Give it up. Don't you love that? I love, I love that video. Uh, obviously, this month, uh, we are focusing on our community groups and what it means to be a genuine community here as a church, and that's not what we're going for, okay? But nevertheless, it makes uh, a point. So if you have a uh, desire to get in a small group, as Brent said, uh, meet uh, he or Oscar out at the Connection Center after this. We'll be talking about that more next week. As well, uh, I, I'm probably guilty here a little bit of not uh, giving you enough preview uh, in the past. I want to let you know where we're going, uh, not just today, but in the fall as we kind of wrap up this series next week. Here's, here's what you can expect as we go uh, into the fall. Next week, we're going to wrap this series up on Genuine Community. Brent is going to uh, preach for us next week and wrap up this four-week series. And then the week after that, on September 11th, we're going to kick off a new series here, uh, September 11th. It's called Thriving in Babylon, okay? We're going to look at the life of Daniel, okay? Because Daniel gives us an example of someone who uh, learns and knows how to live faithfully in a pagan culture. Sound uh, relevant to you? That's, that's the life, that's the topic that we're going to look at beginning September 11th. That'll be a six-week series. In the middle of that series, I'm also excited because I believe it's October 2nd, but in the middle of that six-week series, I'm going to have my friend Michael Roberts, who is another pastor here in the area at King of Kings Bible Church. Michael is a, is a, a black man, black preacher at a black church, and he's going to come and share the word with us on October the 2nd and uh, bring God's word to us. So I'm excited about that for the fall 
as well. That pretty much takes us uh, up to November. In November, we'll do some uh, different kinds of things, including our annual chili challenge after church. So that'll be in November. And then that just kind of brings us up to uh, Christmas time and the Advent season. Can you believe it? Where did uh, summer go? So anyway, that's, that's where we are heading. And uh, now a little bit look back on where we've been, okay? This is our third week in our series on genuine community. We started two weeks ago, and I, I talked about sharing life together, okay? Uh, oh, I guess I need to say this first. Our, our mission as a church here, okay? If you are new to Centennial, have been around here a couple times, our mission as a church is to center lives on Jesus Christ, to see lives focused and centered and built around the person and work of Jesus Christ. One of the ways, one of the strategies that we have for doing that, that we see over and over in the scripture, is this idea of community, genuine community. So we've taken four weeks here at the end of the summer, beginning of school year, to focus on what it looks like to be a people of genuine community. And as I said uh, two weeks ago, we began this series, and I talked a little bit about sharing life together. And we looked at that passage where Jesus tells us in John chapter 13, uh, love one another as I have loved you. And by this, by your love for one another as a believing community, people will know that the Father has sent me because of our love for one another. So we talked about this idea of, of, of sharing life together. And I said that you need others and others need you. And we also talked about how uh, babies are, are born into families. That's God's design. We had, a, we had a baby boy about three weeks ago. He was born into a family. That is God's design. And as a believer, as a Christian, God has given you a family, a family of faith. It's called the church, your church community, to help you grow up and to be a place of safety and a place of protection and a place of preparation and growth in this life. So we talked about sharing life together. And loving one another. And I made the point in that first week that Jesus commands us all over Scripture, but particularly in John chapter 13, he commands us to love one another. And I asked the question, why does he command us to love one another? Why, why is it a command from Jesus? And it didn't take us very long uh, to come up with the conclusion that he commands us to love one another because, quite frankly, sometimes we're difficult to love. It's not always easy to love one another. In fact, I said that the primary metaphor here in the scripture of our community is not that we're friends, like Cheers, or the sitcom Friends, or the TV show Community, but the primary metaphor is that we're brothers and sisters. And don't you know that brothers and sisters sometimes fight? And don't you know that when you go to a family reunion and there's extended aunts and uncles and cousins, that there's always a a crazy cousin Eddie in the group, and there's someone there that's, that's hard to love, so... Jesus commands us, we have to be commanded to love one another because it's not always easy to be loved, to love other people. Last week, we looked at uh, shared differences, and we talked about, we went to uh, Matthew chapter 3, and we talked about how the, the disciples themselves, the 12 guys that Jesus picked to be with him as his primary followers for those three years, were a very diverse group of men. Uh, more so than you might have thought. We unpacked that a little bit uh, last week, and we said that different is good. Different is good. As, as you search for a community group, our natural tendency is to find some people like me. Man, I want to find some people that have similar interests, similar personalities, perhaps, and, and that's okay. There's a place for that, but I challenged this last week. You know, different is good. And sometimes it's, it's those people that are different, perhaps those people in your community group that are, that are difficult to love, that God can use in your life to transform you, that uh, there's a danger 
and just doing life with people that are just like us, right? Different is good. Some of us uh, pride ourselves, or you may think of some people, they think, hey, that's a, that's a well-rounded person right there. The Bible would say, no, there are no well-rounded people. <laughs> uh, some people are more well-rounded than others, but basically at our core, all of us need other people in the family or in the body of Christ to rub off the rough edges of us. None of us are as self-sufficient or as well-rounded as we think we are. Just ask your spouse, okay? Uh, So that's what we talked about last week, share differences before that, share life. And this week, what will probably be your favorite and the most practical of all, and that is share a meal. This morning, we're going to talk about food. How about that, right? I asked some people uh, this week, I said, have you you ever thought uh, uh, about food? And they said, of course I've thought about food. I'm thinking about food right now. Thinking about food, like where are we going to go eat after this church service, right? But have you ever thought about a theology of food? Have you ever thought about how the Bible speaks about meals and food? That's what we're going to look at this morning, and my desire in this is to make you hungry, okay? Not just hungry for where you're going to go after church, but hungry for community and for fellowship and for deeper conversation around a meal, around a meal. Food is a gift from God, as we'll see. Some of you know, as I said earlier, we had a we had our third born three weeks ago, and we have been so blessed uh, by many of you bringing us meals. And I told people that our, that our little boy, Truett, was born about seven pounds, five ounces. His father has since gained seven pounds, five ounces from all the food that you guys are bringing. And it's wonderful. We were sitting around the table, and, and I've, I'm kind of keeping a chart of who has the best home cooking or whatever, so you can find me afterwards. But it's all delicious. But we're all eating last week at the table, and I told the kids, I said, isn't it wonderful that our neighbors and our church family and so many people have been bringing us meals so mommy doesn't have to cook. Isn't it wonderful? And yeah, yeah, you know, as much as they can be appreciative at five and seven. And and then my five-year-old Campbell said, yeah, but eventually when Truett's about seven years old, mommy's going to have to cook again. And I said, I like the way you think. Let's keep this going. Uh, So here's, here's the end point, okay? Here's the end application today. When we get at the end of this message, here's the application up front. What I want you to do today is to commit within the next seven days to initiate a meal with a friend or a neighbor or someone in your community group, okay? To sit down around the table and to fellowship over food. I'm going to build the case for that for the rest of our time together, but that's the end game. That's the goal. That's the application. Obviously, we want to continue to push our community groups, and we're trying to reach, uh, we're trying to build more community groups and have more people in community groups, so I want you to have that application in front of you as well. But that's where we're headed at the end today. I want to start by looking at Matthew chapter 26, which we'll kind of end with as well. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26 after that long introduction. Let's dive in. Matthew 26, and I want to read verse 26 through 29. Uh, This is the Lord's Supper. This is the institution of communion that we will celebrate at the end of the message. And here are the words of Matthew as this uh, meal, as this supper is first celebrated by Jesus and the twelve. Verse 26 says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, we'll look at this more at the end as we celebrate communion, but what I want you to notice here is that when Jesus was describing what his death would mean to his followers, when he was getting ready to go to the cross the next day, what he gave his disciples was not primarily a lecture or some theological exposition, but what he gave his friends and followers was a meal that would remind them of what he did on the cross and why he did it for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus shared this meal, and as we'll see in a moment, shared meals all throughout the scriptures. So I think, let me, let me back up and build the case for why sharing a meal is important and why, in fact, I want us to be a church, I know you'll love this, that shares meals together. That we eat together regularly, that we fellowship around food, not that we're all striving for gluttony or that we all want to be, you know, a church of the obese, okay? That's not what we're going for, but to be a church of fellowship, of genuine community, and often that happens around a table and around food. And I think we know that intuitively, and I think I can also prove it to you this morning biblically. But first of all, just intuitively, I think you know this. Uh, those of you that are married, you, you can probably recall those first dates or those first moments with your spouse, right? And I imagine for 90% of us, those first dates went something like this, a movie and what? Dinner. Dinner, food, and conversation. And you may be able uh, to remember that first movie that you went to, perhaps. Um, you may not. You probably don't remember all the details of your conversation over dinner, but I guarantee you what was more important on those first dates was not the movie that you went to, but the dinner and the conversation that you had over food. You, we know this intuitively. We know most of us in our homes, the where, where most of, of the relationship building happens is not in the bedroom, but in fact in the kitchen, in the dining room, that's where the big conversations have. That's where the arguments happen. It's around the table. It's in the kitchen. It's around the idea of food. We know this intuitively. One author named Tim Chester, uh, in a book that he wrote called A Meal with Jesus, Tim Chester says this about food. He says uh, he records a 33% decrease in families eating together over the last 30 years and a 45% decrease in friends doing so. That's significant. Uh, prior generations, prior times before, fellowship around food and, and family reunions and, and gatherings and coming over for a Saturday evening or a Sunday afternoon uh, time of, uh, as a family or as friends was a long time. It was an afternoon uh, long thing. In other cultures, in most cultures besides America today, if we were to share a meal today after church, we would be together all afternoon. We would take our time. We would enjoy the food. We would slow down our lives. We would make time to talk and to catch up. Chester goes on to write this. He says the importance of this. Meals slow things down. Some of us don't like that. I'm one of those. Meals slow things down. Some of us don't like that. We like to get things done. But meals force you to be, peop be people-oriented instead of task-oriented. Sharing a meal is not the only way to build relationships but is the number one on the list. You agree with me? It's important, isn't it? The sharing a meal. And parents, I think just a good practice for us with our families is that we've got to have time around the table with our kids. We've got to have time where we slow down and share a meal together 
It's just good. So let me show you. First of all, uh, point number one is that food is a gift of God. Food is a gift of God. If you just back up and think about this, the very beginning of our Bible starts in Genesis 1 and 2 in creation, and God creates all this earth. He creates the mountain. He, he creates the seas. There's this, this perfect garden, and in that perfect garden where Adam and Eve are set, there is food. There is perfect, untainted, unwilted, uh, great organic food in the garden. And, uh, and God says that, that man and woman, they have dominion over that food. They have dominion over that creation. But food is given in plenty. In the garden, there's, there's no inequity. There's no parts of the garden uh, where starvation exists. There's no gluttony and overindulgence in the garden. But there's good, wonderful, tasty, yummy food. And that is a gift from God. God, God created us for food. And not only did he create us for food and, and, and make our bodies such that they need food and they need those, nutri- those nutrients, but get this. The other evidence of God's grace in food is that food tastes good. It tastes really good. Now think about this. God could have created a world where we needed food and, and food gave us energy and nutrients, but he could have made it where it doesn't taste good. But in the grace of God, he has given us food that not only fuels us, like gas would fuel a car, but he's given us food that fuels us and also is enjoyable. The, the joy of a good meal, the, the, the joy of a, of a good drink. And this is unique because at the, the writing of the Genesis account, compared to other ancient Near Eastern accounts of creation, in other ancient Near Eastern accounts of creation, what happens generally is that the gods or God creates people to be food for the gods. The gods create people, create humans to be food for the gods. What happens in the Christian story of creation is that God creates food for his people to enjoy as a, as a sign of his grace, as a sign of his goodness and their enjoyment to taste tasty food. But it's also, if you think about food from the beginning of the scriptures, we also find that in food uh, at the beginning of creation was the, was the means by which Adam and Eve fell into sin was what? Forbidden fruit. There was this forbidden tree, this forbidden fruit that they weren't supposed to eat of. They had dominion over everything, but God gave them this one command, don't eat from this tree, don't eat this fruit. And what did they do? They took their eyes off of God, they disobeyed his commands, and they took this fruit that wasn't theirs to eat, that looked good, Genesis says, that looked good to the eye, and they took it and they ate of it, and we've been paying the consequences ever since. But sin, get this, comes into the world through food. And that the rest of Scripture, though, is God redeeming food, if you will, and redeeming us, ultimately through Jesus, who's called the bread of life. The fall comes through food. And what that shows me, what's that, what that has reminded me of this week, that the fall has come through food, is that if something as basic as food can take my eyes off of God than anything can. If food can cause me to stumble, then anything can. So food is created by God. It's it's given to us. It tastes good. He gives us 10,000 taste buds by which to enjoy it. But food is also the way that sin comes into the world. As you go through the Bible further after Genesis, in Exodus chapter 12, as God is delivering his people from Egypt, 
They are delivered after all these plagues through a meal. It's called Passover. And all the Israelites take this lamb and they sacrifice this lamb. And the blood of that lamb protects them from death. And they're in a hurry and they leave Egypt after the plagues, after celebrating this meal. After celebrating at a table and knowing God's provision, they leave through the Passover meal. As they go on in their journeys to get to the promised land, as they're in the wilderness, they start grumbling. They've been grumbling the whole way, but as they're grumbling in the wilderness, God provides for them again, and he provides for them food, this thing that he calls manna. And they didn't like the taste of manna, but manna was to remind them that food that God gave them in the wilderness, that they were only supposed to take uh, as much as they needed for that day. They weren't supposed to hoard it. They were supposed to take what they needed for that day. And that manna told them, God is the provider of your food. Now, we forget that today because we have food in abundance where we are. But every meal we eat is a reminder that God is our provider even of our food. So God gets them out of Egypt. He gets them in the wilderness, and they have to depend on him every day for manna, for their daily food. As we move on through the Old Testament, you have all this talk in the Old Testament, not only about fasting, but also about feasting. You may think, hey, it's really spiritual to fast, and it can be, but did you know it's also really spiritual to feast? And that God gives the nation Israel these big celebrations, these feasts, where they're supposed to have fine foods and wine and drink and really splurge and celebrate. There's feasts. If you look in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll see some of these. God is giving them the grace, giving them the good gift of food all throughout the Old Testament. As we get to the New Testament, Jesus comes on the scene, and where is Jesus born? In Bethlehem. You know what Bethlehem means? It means house of bread. And you know what will come out of Bethlehem through Jesus? Jesus will call himself the bread of life. Given to you to satisfy you, not for your your physical needs, although he provides those, but given to satisfy your spiritual needs. Jesus is born in a house of bread in Bethlehem. What is Jesus' first miracle that he does? His first miracle is recorded in John chapter 2. And what is that first miracle? It's at a party. It's at a wedding where Jesus turns water to wine. He's celebrating at these wedding feasts and they run out of wine and Jesus saves the day and turns water to wine. I was tempted to call this message day and instead of share a meal, share a bottle of wine. But, you know, there's too many Baptists among us, so I felt like I probably shouldn't do that. But share a meal, share a bottle of wine. The first miracle that Jesus does is at this party where he multiplies the water and changes it uh, to wine. You know, not only did Jesus call himself uh, the bread of life, but he also called himself the living water. What was one of the one criticism, one of, one of the often criticized things about Jesus by the religious leaders, the Pharisees and scribes? One of the things they ascribed to him, what, one of the things they called him, name calling, was that Jesus is a drunkard and a glutton. Do you know that that's what the religious establishment called Jesus? A drunkard and a glutton. Now, if they were able to call Jesus a drunkard and a glutton, my guess is that he liked food and he probably wasn't a teetotaler because they called him a glutton and a drunkard. Jesus enjoyed meals. He enjoyed drink. He sat down in people's homes. He enjoyed the fellowship of others around a table. And then, as I read earlier, we get uh, to right before the cross where he gives his disciples this last supper. He teaches them about his death through a meal. 
After the resurrection, as, as, as Jesus is resurrected, Peter has denied Jesus three times, you remember, in John chapter 20. Peter sees that Jesus resurrected is over on the beach. And so Peter, in his impulsive way, jumps out of the boat from his night of fishing, swims over to the beach, and Jesus reinstates Peter over, guess what? Some fried fish. There's a, there's, they, they boil fish there on the beach in John chapter 20. And Jesus asks Peter this question, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, I love you. And Jesus then says, well, then feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. All over a catch of fried fish. He reinstates Peter. As you look in the New Testament, the story of the church, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, the Bible tells us multiple times that the beginning of the church, as they gathered, they would meet home to home and they would break bread. And I take that to mean celebrating communion. It says they broke bread together and they shared meals from house to house. That's the way they operated as the early church, breaking bread together and sharing meals. And then one of the most intimate Invitations of Jesus himself, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Some of you have this memorized, perhaps from Sunday school. Revelation 3, 20, Jesus says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. In one of the most intimate invitations to a relationship with Jesus, he pictures it like this, that he's knocking at the door that he wants to come in. And he's not coming in to inspect your house. He's not coming in to look the place over, but he's knocking at the door, wanting to come in and share a meal with you and sit at the table of your life and share that intimacy. The story of the Bible moves from the garden, this perfect garden to the end of Revelation, where at the end of Revelation, at the end of time, as all people are gathered together in heaven to worship, the Bible describes in Revelation 19 and 20, this what is called the wedding feast of the Lamb. We started with some fruit in the garden that went bad, but the end of the story in Revelation is the culmination of God's creation and redemption, and it says that all people from all tribes, tongue, and nations, all different colors, are celebrating together at the wedding supper of the Lamb. This huge spread, this wonderful, intimate time together. I wrote down, that's what we have to look forward to. The wedding supper of the Lamb, a meal like no other meal you've enjoyed. I wrote down in my notes here, the food God provides offers an occasion to thank the God who provides. That's why many of us have that habit, have that tradition of thanking God before we take our meal because the meal is a reminder God provides. God provides and therefore thank him. Not only is food a gift of God, but also we see that meals are a means of relational growth. Means are a meal, means are a means, excuse me, meals are a means of relational growth. Look back in our passage here in Matthew 26. Notice in uh, verse 26 of Matthew 26, uh, Matthew writes, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. Now they had been eating. But now they're going to do this special ceremony 
of communion. And it says, now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread. That phrase we saw once before, we didn't read it this morning, but if you look back at verse 20, 21, the same words are repeated in verse 21. It says, and as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. As they were eating, as they were eating, what's the point? The point is that significant things happen as we eat together. As they were eating, Jesus said, I'm going to be betrayed. And as they were eating, he said, and I'm going to die for those who have turned against me. That's what this meal is about. And it happened around a table. We live in an era of fast food and thin relationships. Fast food and thin relationships. We're a busy people. All of us are. Everyone in this room is busy. I'm busy. And what we need to do a better job, we can't escape Collin County. We, we can't escape our schedules often. If we can't slow our pace down, we at least need to build into our lives a rhythm and some occasion of stopping, slowing down, having a long, delicious meal and enjoying the fellowship of one another and our brothers and sisters in Christ and inviting our neighbors into our homes around the table. Fast food and thin relationships. And I would prefer us to be a people of slow food and deep relationships. And that often is facilitated around the table. We have uh, about eight core values on our website, core values as a church. One of them is that we say that we value relationships, and our value statement goes something like this. It says, as people, we, dis- we are radically relational. We turn off our screens and slow down our schedules, creating space for true face time and community. That's our desire as a church family, and that should be our desire as individual Christians to be radically relational, to slow down in a city, in a world that's so busy, to slow down and to be a city on a hill and a city in a hurry and to look across the table from one another and care and talk and share. I think there's two, and I've said this before, some of you have heard this before, I think there's two things that as as the world spins and the direction that it spins, Two things that are really going to make us stand out as distinctively Christian in the months and years ahead. One of them is about technology. One of them is about being able to have coffee with someone, to be able to share a meal with someone, and put this thing in my pocket, in your purse or whatever, and not look at it for the rest of the time you are locked eyes with that person. You know how radical that is today? How many of your kids can go through a meal without looking at their cell phone? And if my wife were here this morning, she would be looking at me with lasers piercing through me. Like, how many times can you do that? Because this is hard. It is like a third appendage for me, my cell phone. But for people to be listened to, to people to be genuinely cared for and loved, to be able to put down our cell phones and look people in the eye and share a coffee or share a meal is going to be increasingly radical and absolutely Christian as we move forward in a busy and divisive culture. Related to that, not only of putting our cell phones down, is this idea of hospitality and having people into our homes. 
you know, we have some people, we have our options now. We can have six-foot fences. We can have chain-link fences. We can have eight-foot fences, or we can have 10-foot fences. I mean, I've got neighbors with 10-foot fences. As the fences get higher in our neighborhoods, what will be more and more radical is for you to invite your neighbors over for a meal, for barbecue, to grill out, whatever, and to have fellowship and to have conversation over the dinner table. And the months and years ahead, because people are so scared, because people are so isolated, because we have such virtual and electronic relationships, that will be more and more radical in the months and years ahead. But I want us to be that kind of people. I want us to be that city on a hill that slows down in a city that's in a big hurry. Some of us need a little bit of help with this. Some of us are introverts, more introverted. Some, some of you are more extroverts. We just got off the Olympics. One of the things I love watching in the Olympics is uh, volleyball. Anybody with me? Beach volleyball? Love it. How many of you have ever seen someone playing beach volleyball by themselves? No teammate and nobody on the other side of the net. I have never witnessed that. You have to have a teammate or you don't have... You have to have a teammate and you have to have an opponent to play beach volleyball, right? Many of us relationally, uh, when it comes to conversations around meals, the extroverts among us, I'm warning right here, is it's like you're playing beach volleyball by yourself. So I'm getting in your business right here, okay? Extroverts, sometimes you don't know how to volley. You don't know how to pass the ball to the other side and let someone else speak. Let someone else say something. So my, my admonition here to the extroverts is sometimes, folks, we need to shut up. And learn how to volley and play volleyball it's because a good relationship and a good conversation gets volleyed back and forth. It doesn't just stay right here to myself. So extroverts, sometimes you got to learn how to pass the ball, set the ball. For the introverts among us, sometimes I mean, we, you know, we just don't like groups or we're we're not as comfortable in groups. But let me let me give caution to the introverts among us. When you're at your community group or when you're at work or whatever, and you're constantly silent. People around you are suspicious of what you're thinking. Like, are they really proud? Are they better than us? They never say anything. Are they, is, is, is she or he judging me? I don't know what they're thinking. So introverts, speak up. Sometimes you got to say something. There's no relationship that grows without communication. And so my admonition to this this morning is that if you're an extrovert, learn how to volley. Learn how to pass the ball. If you're an introvert, I want to encourage you to speak up so we know what you're thinking. You have good thoughts. We need to not fear that you're over there, you know, taking notes of what we're doing, but you're not saying anything, right? A mentor of mine 10 years ago, uh, a guy by the name of Chuck Reinhold said, to deepen relationships, you, you need to develop the skill of asking best friend type questions. And it's, so in, instead of being at lunch with the, the folks at work and you go out and you talk about the, the, the new uh, stadium in Frisco or you're talking about the weather or whatever, that you begin to learn how to ask best friend type questions. What's a best friend type question? A best friend type question takes it to another level. It's like, hey, that, uh, that special need that your kids had, I bet that's hard to deal with. What's that like? I know uh, you said that... Uh, you were selling your car, you were down, it, 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 it sounds like you're going through a tough time uh, financially. Is there some way I can help you? That's a best friend type question. You seem a little quiet. You seem a little down. Is everything okay? That's a best friend type question. 
You might be thinking, well, that sounds like a kind of question a counselor would ask. Well, maybe so. But it's also the type of question that fuels a depth of relationship that takes you to another level that I think we all ultimately want and that we all need. So I want to challenge you this morning, the application again. Can we be a people who share a meal, who go deeper uh, as we share over the table? Will you do that this week? Will you initiate, with, within the next seven days, within the next week, will you initiate a meal with a friend, with a neighbor, with someone in your community group? Will you initiate a meal with another family to have them over and to sit and not make it just 60 minutes, but dwell on it? Will you do that? Let me close this morning, final thing, with the meal that Jesus gave us. Communion is what we will celebrate in a few minutes. Communion is a reminder, a celebration, and a preview. A reminder, a celebration, and a preview. Look again at verses 26 through 29 with me as Jesus gives us this meal. It says, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples. Take, eat, this is my body. As we take the bread this morning, we remember the body of Christ broken for us to forgive us and to bring us into a table fellowship relationship with himself and also to reconcile us as forgiven sinners with one another. He says, take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What does it cost you to have a relationship with someone else? It costs you some time, costs you some energy, might cost you some frustration when things get hard. What did it cost for you to have a relationship with the God of this universe? It cost the Son of God his very blood. Spilled for you to be forgiven and to one day sit at a table with Jesus Christ himself and all your brothers and sisters. You know that opening ceremony of the Olympics? I love watching that. You can criticize it however you want, but all the nations come together and they've got their flags and all the athletes are coming in from every nation, however many there are. And they're coming in and they're being announced and all that. And I thought as I watched that, what an amazing picture of all the nations of the world coming together, red, yellow, black, and white, every tongue, tribe, and nation. And in the Olympic ceremony, they're coming together in pride of their nation and they're coming together for what? To compete against one another. But you know what's going to happen at the end of time, different than the Olympic opening ceremony, is that the wedding supper of the Lamb, all the nations, all the tongues, tribes, and languages, all the red, yellow, black, and white are going to be together in heaven, and they're going to march in not to compete with each other, but to praise and to worship in common the Son of God who bled for them. What a beautiful picture. The last thing Jesus says here in verse 29, he says, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is a reminder of what Jesus has done, and it's also a preview of the meal that's coming with Jesus and all our brothers and sisters. Celebrate it with us this morning.
Will you bow? I want to invite our servers to go ahead and come forward and grab the elements and take your place at your stations. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I just want to give you a moment right where you are just to do business with the Lord. Maybe you need to confess. Maybe you need to say, Jesus, you know what? It's been a long time since we sat down together. It's been a long time since I fellowshiped with you. Thank you for shedding your blood to make me a brother and sister in your kingdom. Father God, we come to you this morning and we thank you for food. We thank you that it tastes so good. We thank you that we have such an abundance of it. It's proof of your provision and proof of, proof of your grace to us. And most of all, Father, we thank you for this meal that we celebrate now that pictures what your son Jesus has done for us and also pictures the meal that we will enjoy in the kingdom to come with everything perfect in this world. Jesus, we thank you for your broken body, your shed blood given to bring us into your kingdom. Help us to love one another. Help us to share life with one another. Help us to go deeper with one another that the world might know that Jesus was sent as our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Come and celebrate.